0: So, you ever wonder why we sing? We do it every Sunday. We, we do it in the shower. We do it while driving. Uh, if you've ever watched a, a Premier League soccer game, you will hear some of the greatest singing ever in those stands. And quite often, they're singing hymns as well. It's, it's pretty amazing to watch but there's singing all around us, and, and also not just in humans, but there's song in nature consistently. It's one of the primary beauties of spring when the songbirds return, and I can sit on my front porch and just hear the sound of spring. You know, honestly, at this point, I'm, I'm more interested in why we as humans sing. Immanuel Kant wrote, if music confer- confers no survival advantage, where does it come from, and, and why does it work? looking some at some of the answers I found exploring this question, well, we sing because it's actually a very basic human need to do so. It's an expression of emotion that engages uh, the, the, the more of the mind and, and the body. Uh, one doctor at uh, UCLA professor said, the primary impulse to sing is to express something welling in up inside you in a way you yourself enjoy. There's a deep physiological and psychological impulse to express emotions through language and song. Margaret Schapper, a USC professor of voice, said, singing is the cheapest therapy you can find learning to sing. Singing has the ability, it has the, the power to alter our mood. Some studies have actually shown that singing for 30 minutes, in particular with a group of others, will release a, a sizable amount of oxytocin into your system. And oxytocin is that, very, that bonding chemical that our body produces. Harvard scholar stated that music is an evolutionary adaptation, one that helps us navigate a world rife with contradictions as we see what's going on in the world and we sing of hope and of joy. And I would agree with much of what these answers have, have put forth, but there is something I think that they're missing, and that's that singing is a reflection of what people, people created in God's image would do. Because our God himself is a singing God. Think of Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And there's times when I just want to imagine what the singing of God sounds like. I've been in large conferences, you know, rooms full of 6,000, 15,000 men singing hymns, and it's glorious, and you hear harmonies and everything else, but I don't think it could compare to the singing of our Lord. I read an article by Jonathan Lehman on this idea, and he gave three reasons why we sing as believers— one, we sing to own and affirm the Word. It's the way that we respond to God's revelation of Himself. We sing it back to Him. We sing it back and we affirm it to one another. We also do it to engage our emotions with God's Word. Our affections are animated as we sing. We sing of joy and laments and praise. And third, we sing to demonstrate and build our unity. Colossians 3, 15, and 16 says, and let The peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is integral to how we teach and admonish and and build one another up. It's interesting, singing, you know, wasn't one of those answers. Singing releases that bonding chemical as we do so together, I wonder why that's so, right? And During Advent, I think singing comes to the fore a bit more than even normal. Christmas songs may be played way too early for some of you, like, you know, the beginning of July or something like that, and, and in particular, some of them you don't like because, honestly, some of them are really bad that you hear on the radio. Um, I don't want to hear Christmas Baby ever again. Um, but we all know These tunes and these songs, we sing them together. People go caroling from house to house, right? These songs lift our hearts. They remind us of who God is. They remind us of hope and peace and joy. They they direct our hearts as they respond to and sing truth. This time of year, not only does the church sing of God's goodness, though, the world does whether they know it or not. As we begin this season of Advent, I want us to think about the songs of Advent, in particular the first carols of Christmas. They may not be the traditional ones that you know, it's not Joy to the World or Come Thou Long Expected Jesus or O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but they were the responses of God's revelation of Himself, and they were sung and they were composed to affirm and rejoice in what had been revealed. And they are beautiful. So we're going to look at four songs from Luke's Gospel, what one commentator rightly identified as the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. And this morning, we start with Mary's song. We start with the Magnificat. It's a beautiful song of praise to God for who He is and for what He has done. And as we do so, we're going to hear, just two, we're going to hear two things, break it up in two ways, the Annunciation and then the Magnificat itself. So let's hear God's word for us today. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. So hear God's word for you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary said, "'Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word.' And the angel departed from her." And then down to verse 46. And Mary said, "'My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation.'" He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word this morning, and we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from it. Empower each of us, empower me by your spirit to proclaim boldly and truthfully and beautifully your word and open all of our eyes and our hearts to hear and to respond To the revelation of yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the text begins with these words, right? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee uh, uh, named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Here in this very beginning verses, we see a, a, a lot of detail a great deal here. We have an angel named Gabriel. He's sent to a very specific place to bring news to a very specific young woman. He was sent to Nazareth, to a virgin, a woman who had never been with a man. She was betrothed, which means she was engaged pretty much with a with legal status of marriage, to, to a man named Joseph, one who was a descendant of King David, and we find out that her name was Mary. And the angel speaks to her. And says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, those words sound phenomenal, don't they? Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you to be favored by God, to to be graced or or to be blessed, to be the recipient of some amazing benefit. It's startling. And to be told that the Lord is with you, folks, that's, that's the desire of all those who know God. To have God's presence with us to bless, to have Him with us. Moses longed for that. If you look back in Exodus 33, Moses uh, he was told by the Lord to go on and, and take the people and continue on the journey. And He says, I, w- I won't go unless your presence goes with us. He knew the blessing of God's presence. So what a beautiful thing to hear these words, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Yet at the same time, those words are shocking. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. For one thing, she had just had an angel appear to her, okay? That would have been troubling as it is for a human to come face to face with a dazzlingly brilliant and sinless being. That's troublesome. It's it's frightful. That she was greatly troubled actually shows that she was more afraid than Zechariah when Gabriel appeared to him. Yet, what happened to her, I don't think was outside of her, her grid of something that was possible, it was within her worldview. But I can only guess that it was never imagined that something like that would ever happen to her. For one thing, when you consider that the people of God had been through 400 years. Of silence from God. There have been 400 years where there's no new word from the Lord. And now this happens. All of a sudden, a, a dazzlingly brilliant angel appears and says those words to you. And she tries to understand it. And now, I know this isn't the same thing, but we all know that the unknown can be troubling, right? wondering what comes next. Uh, we've all felt that. I know for me, this is probably tried a little bit, but when I get a text from anyone that says, hey, can we talk this week? I hate it. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you that right now because my mind will start to wonder, um, what, what's this about? What's, what's going on? Is everything okay? Did I do something wrong? Are you leaving the church? Are you moving? Or what, what, what's, what's going on? And my mind just starts to race at things like that. But Mary here is not wondering whether something's gone wrong. She's trying to discern, what is this nature of the blessing that the Lord is bringing to me? And so the angel says to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus.'" He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine hearing those words? First, he starts off with some of the most needed words in Scripture, do not be afraid. Words of comfort, accompanied by this restatement that you have found favor, you found grace in the sight of God. What he is about to say is going to be just magnificent news. And these words that she hears, these carry immense weight. Like, I'm not sure there's been a a more compact few verses spoken than these. You know, Mary was steeped in the Jewish tradition She knew the covenants that God had made with his people through Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. So when she heard these words, there's certainly some understanding of what in the world is happening to her and the gravity of them. First, she's told, You will conceive and bear a son, and we'll call his name Jesus. In Matthew's account, we are told that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, he will be Savior. And then she is told, he will be great. Like, we, all of us parents want to know our kids are going to be great. We, we want that. But this is something different here. It's interesting the way that it's been put. Okay, um, one commentator wrote, John's greatness, if, you, if we went back to chapter 1, was in the sight of God, but Jesus' greatness is unqualified and absolute, especially in the Septuagint, that's what LXX means. Greatness without a qualifier is an attribute of God alone. Gabriel attributes this quality to Jesus. So Mary is told your child to be great. What she's being told is your child will be God. Your child is God. Also, if you think back to Micah 5, uh, verse 4 and 5, speaks of a Davidic figure in this way. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Beyond that, he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David." This child will be royal, will be kingly, recalling 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant made with David and his house forever. Gabriel is telling Mary, this child will be in that line and will fulfill that covenant. He will reign forever. His kingdom will be endless. I found this interesting. He said, uh, one commentator wrote, these verses unmistakably point back to Old Testament expectations of the renewal of the Davidic dynasty, Although numerous passages may have contributed to these verses, significant conceptual parallels exist between these verses in Second Samuel 7 8 through 16, where the Davidic covenant was established. And you see Davidic descent, promise of greatness, the throne of David, divine sonship of the Davidic king, and perpetual nature of his kingdom. And a similar conglomeration of ideas that appears in Psalm 89 reflects the continued expectation of a Davidic son in the Old Testament, and there are numerous passages that you could go to. Folks, what it's saying is that the people had this expectation of one born in the line of David, and so it's important that we know that Joseph was a descendant of David, And I can't help but think of Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mary surely had this expectation and now she has had an angel announce to her that a child will be born to her who will fulfill that expectation. That's overwhelming. And her response is one of amazement. But it's also a bit of, how is this actually going to happen? It, it isn't a, a doubting that, the, that God is powerful enough to do this, that God can do this, or doubting what is said, but wondering simply because she's not married. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel answers in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Here's how. Here's how it's going to happen. The the power of the God that created the universe will be exerted upon you. The Spirit of God will work, will overshadow you. God's Spirit will be at work. God's Spirit has always been at work. J.C. Ryle wrote, In every step of the great work of man's redemption, we shall find special mention of the work of the Holy Ghost. Did Jesus die to make atonement for our sins? It is written that through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without spot to God. Did he rise again for our justification? It is written that he was quickened by the Spirit. Does he supply his disciples with comfort between the time of his first and second advent? It is written that the Comforter whom he promised to send is the Spirit of truth. Folks, the Spirit of God has been overshadowing, in a good way, sometimes we can think of that word maybe in a bad way, but overshadowing the people of God from the very inception of God's people. He's been working in conjunction to bring about our salvation and glory, and this Spirit will come upon Mary, and the child will be holy, sinless, the Son of God, He must be in order to fulfill the law perfectly. He must be to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Folks, this announcement that Gabriel gives to Mary must never get old for us. It may be heard over and over and over again, but it must never get old. And then he gives a final confirmation in that he tells Mary that your relative Elizabeth, you know, the lady that everybody said was barren, she's actually six months pregnant. And in essence says nothing's impossible for God. Mary would probably think back to to Sarah and that she bore a son in her old age. And then Mary responded in humble faith, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your word. And then she visits Elizabeth. She goes and she visits her relative, and verse 42, which we didn't read earlier, but it says this, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy.'" And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary goes from hearing what Gabriel said to having this greeting from her relative. And all of this, all of this engenders a response. It has to. God is about to change the course of history. And how is he going to do it? Through a baby in the womb of an obscure young woman from Nazareth. And Mary is so moved by all this that she breaks out in song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Folks, when when someone recognizes the work of the Lord when they've experienced the work of the Lord, when they see it, that the natural reaction is joy and praise. It's singing. This is the heartbeat of Christian living, magnifying the Lord. This is mankind's chief end, isn't it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Philip Reichen wrote, to magnify means to enlarge. And what Mary wanted to enlarge was her vision of God. Her goal was to show His greatness, She wanted to magnify God, not her own position as the mother of the Son of God. She knew that she was blessed because of who God was, not because of who she was. Therefore, she wanted God to be seen, to be great, not herself. The way to show this was not by thinking only about what God was doing in her life, but by enlarging her vision to see the majesty of God. My soul magnifies the Lord. She longed for that, in all, uh, for, for God to be magnified and praised and glorified in all he is and in all he does. And she does that. She continues on in her song as she recognizes God's work. Verse 48, four. The word "for" helps tell us why she's magnifying. What, what is this that, that really started it? For He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Folks, Mary is delighting in the person, in the mercy, in the grace of God, the, the sheer realization that God has looked upon her and blessed her, favored her. That, that is a reason for praise in and of itself. She is blessed in that God chose her to be an integral part in the grand work of redemption, but her focus is not on herself. Even though she has the privilege of carrying the Savior in her womb, it's God that has done mighty things. He is the one who is holy in whom there is nothing unseemly or impure, nothing can take away from the perfection of the Lord. And then Mary moves a bit more to God's work and how God typically works and really where we see the much of the theme of this song come out is that he exalts the humble and he brings low the proud. uh, In essence, the, the winds of God's grace come to the unexpected. They come to the humble and they blow over the proud. Each of these ideas actually is repeated three times in this short song Verse 50, we see to the humble, for his mercy is for those who fear him. 52, he exalted those of humble state. 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And then to the proud, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and the rich he has sent away empty. Folks, the coming of this child would turn the world upside down. The proud in in their intelligence and their position and power and in their wealth, they are brought down. They are brought down. Everything that mankind boasts in, it is brought to nothing by the Son of God because God is the only one who deserves the power and glory. He's the only one we want to exert power and glory because He's the only one who is holy and everything that He does is righteous and good. And we are called to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves before him, to take refuge in him, to delight in his strength and in his greatness. And I think this echoes a significant theme in Scripture. I'm often reminded of Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. You begin with the greatness of God. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand hath made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So you you see this greatness of the Lord. And then there's this juxtaposition. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit. And who trembles at my word. The Lord, the High and Holy One, the one who inhabits eternity, turns and looks to the humble. He looks in the unexpected ways. Folks, those who take no account of God, they will not experience blessing. God will scatter those who, do, who, who, who don't believe that they need Him, those who are proud in their own achievements and abilities, those who seek their own justification. But he blesses the lowly, those who know their need, who know their sinfulness, who know that they desperately need a Savior. They will be the ones who praise God for who he is, for his greatness, for his mercy and grace. And we see in this text that God is merciful. That is who he is. He is the one whose mercies are new every morning, And great is his faithfulness, that he fills those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. And so with the coming of this child, who will be born in a stable to an obscure young virgin, we see this upside-down nature of the kingdom clearly demonstrated. All that we take pride in is brought low. And this one who no one would have regarded by his appearance will do everything necessary for our salvation in a way that very few, if any, actually expected. By humbling himself. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then we look to Philippians. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord himself humbled himself took the form of a child, became man for us and flipped the world upside down. And in him, eventually, all the sad things are going to become untrue. The world will be made right. And this is a beautiful song that Mary sang. It's a reminder that God does not look favorably to the pride of mankind, but he looks to the humble. He looks to those who know their need, who know that they need a refuge. The Magnificat is a song in response to who God is, to His nature and work, to His person and mercy. It is a song rejoicing in the favor of God to the humble, and it is tearing down the pride of mankind. It's a song about God's mercy and grace. It's a song about his faithfulness, his steadfast love. It's a song about the coming of our Savior as a child to set his children free from sin and death. It's about God's working for us, what we cannot work for ourselves. So let us be people who rejoice in God, our Savior, whose souls magnify the Lord. Let us sing of the mercy of God. Let us humble ourselves, not just today, But throughout our lives, let us humble ourselves and live and bask in and delight in God's mercy and grace. Delight in in God's presence. Delight in the blessing of God to those who know their need. Let us delight in that, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who came as a child to save us from our pride, from our sin from ourselves in so many ways. Let's delight in Him, and may His mercy be the theme of our song all our days. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You work in a way that is often unexpected for us, but is beautiful. Because we know that even in our pride, even in our strength, we are incapable. We're incapable of affecting our own salvation. We're incapable of loving well. We're incapable of of so many things. And so, Lord, call us to humility. Humble us. Strengthen us by Your grace and Your goodness. Your strength is perfected in our weakness. Lord, be perfect in us. Thank you for all that you have given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.